You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. We've got a great show for you this week. It is February 12th, and uh, another uh, another day here, and it's going to be my uh, anniversary. That's right, my wife and I have been married, brace yourselves, 15 years. I got married young. And one of the, you know, one of those ideas about getting married young is that you don't understand what you're getting into, which we didn't. Um, you're more prone to make mistakes because you don't know who you are, which is absolutely true. And though there are other relationships like ours that have lasted a long time, starting at such a young age, um, it is still quite a rare occurrence, certainly in, in modern society. Uh, I would just like to say to my wife, after 15 years, I... I'm so in love with you, oh, whatever you want to do, is alright with me, you make me feel so brand new, I want to spend my life with you. Oh, baby, let's, let's stay together, loving you weather, weather, times are good and bad and happy and sad. <laughs> Thanks for putting up with that. <laughs> it may sound really cheesy and a little annoying to you, but I think she'll dig it. You know, after 15 years, you know virtually everything there is to know about another human being. Um, we've had two beautiful children together. And still, there are times when I look over at her and I just see pure beauty coming off of her. Um, the love that she shares with me. Uh, I couldn't ask for anything more, really. She is truly the first and best thing in my life right now and has been for the 15 years we've been married and the going 19 years that we've known each other. I love you, baby. Happy anniversary. But like I did say at the top of the show, I do have a great show for you uh, in The Devil's Advocate. I'm going to be talking about a little uh, article in Letters from the Devil uh, it's based around the idea of when a curse is appropriate or not. And so I sort of want to speak to that for a minute. In Infernal Informant, I have an article here. Who castrated Ann Coulter and Santorum? Concerns about emotions if women on front lines. In the Creature Feature, I'm bringing you an interview I conducted this morning with Royce Davis of Rolls-Royce Tattoos. 
I've been seeing his tattoos, his artwork, and his now photography around the social networking sites, and I wanted to talk to him about it. And in Bizarre the Bizarre, I am going to be bringing you one, and we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, you know, appropriate uh, toilet activities, you know, besides using it. So, uh, just some things that I've noticed, you know, in, in my uh, professional life and personal life that I want to bring to you. Uh, Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. So, if you uh, do buy into the completely manufactured commercial holiday, which if you're in a relationship, you should, strictly for the other person in most cases, unless, of course, they're not really into it, um, it, it can be used as a reminder. And I think it's important as someone who has been in a relationship for a long time with our drastic ups and downs, that you don't need an excuse to celebrate the love that you have for someone else. You don't need it, but it certainly feels good when you do it. So if you do take a moment out, buy her a flower, him, just stop and grab a hold of them and tell them, God damn it, you are beautiful. I love you. Let them know how you feel. Because I think a lot of times in life, we sort of let that expression of love and affection wane a little bit. Uh, you know, let's turn this commercial holiday that is really based around absurd consumerism and turn it into something of uh, what it was supposed to be about in the first place. Worshipping that special person in your life. I do, um, and I rarely buy anything to do it. You don't have to. Let them know what they mean to you, because it means a whole hell of a lot to them having you do that. Let's dive right into The Devil's Advocate. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? They don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. All right. I'm actually looking in Letters from the Devil, uh, and this is published through uh, Underworld Amusements. It's a collection of the article Anton LaVey uh, wrote in um, some old, uh, I guess, Penny Magazine's uh, uh, National uh, Insider. You're going to want to check out this book. If you don't have it already, it is full of 
<laughs> Anton LaVey's uh, wit, wisdom, uh, and advice, actually. Stuff that you, you're just not going to see in other publications that have been released. Great book, underworldamusements.net. Uh, go pick it up. But I was looking through here, and I found this article called Stand Up to In-Law with Logic, Not Curse. And it revolved around the idea that this woman was writing in and asking Anton LaVey if, because she's not a member of the Church of Satan, if a destruction curse will work. She explains her situation, and Anton LaVey's answer is, is probably not what you would expect, um, which is what provokes this entire discussion. He tells her, um, loosely, that she should probably not curse the mother-in-law, you know, in her situation. And not to say that she's not deserving of it, but to stand up on your own two feet and fight for the rights that you believe you have. And this speaks to a huge part of what I think it means to be a Satanist, and not just someone trying to use ritual uh, as, uh, you know, some quick resolution or murdering their enemies uh, in a legal way, you know? If we if we can take a second and take a step back from the scenario uh, provided and recognize that we're all grown men and women here, um, the Church of Satan does not accept children. And because we're grown men and women, you have to have, well, if you really are a Satanist, a healthy ego and a sense of personal accountability and responsibility. With that means that you have to be able to stand up for what you think is right. Now, you have to pick and choose these situations that require you standing up and fighting. Um, and in the uh, example given in this article, uh, Anton LaVey thought he, you know, it was worth stepping up and, and being honest. And he approaches it like this. If it's something that you have the capacity of handling without ritual... Well, then you should do that. And he doesn't say this, uh, but I think it's worth mentioning as well, because it helps you grow as a human being, as a Satanist. Standing up to adversity tells you who you are. You have that intestinal fortitude to fight through the challenges that life will inevitably throw at you. This is part of what being a Satanist is all about. So, you know... If you're going in every conflict you have in life, you're just sucking it up like a sponge and you're going to the ritual chamber and letting it out, okay. You know what? For some people, I'm sure that's fine. That that works. For me, and I would like to think for the majority of people, the ritual chamber is those rare expressions of emotion. You know, the intellectual decompression chamber is is meant not for common use, it's meant for dire need. Now, and that's why the rituals contained, you know, in the Satanic Bible, uh, lust, compassion, and destruction, are at those true ends of the spectrum of human emotion. Because you don't, you only go and use them when you need them. And there's nothing wrong with doing it all the time. Uh, 
it's not like uh, <laughs> you're going to deplete something, you know, th- that makes it work or, or, or that makes ritual effective. Uh, but I know for me, the rarity in which I do ritualize aids in the power that I feel when I do ritualize. Uh, and and I, like I've said in some past shows, I've, I've only done one destruction ritual. I don't foresee ever doing another one. Not because of any potential end, or um, one thing that Anton LaVey mentions is coming back on you threefold, I think it was, um, because I think that's sort of the, the you know, that ridiculous uh, pagan belief that, that things come back to you if you don't mean them. Uh, and I'm not going to try to rationalize whether or not he really meant that or not, uh, but he does bring it up in this article again. Uh, I personally don't think that... Uh, Non-directed energy will affect. Now, whether it's affected at your direction or whether it's affected at you is, you know, a whole other beast. But you shouldn't be doing any ritual unless you absolutely have tried everything to resolve it yourself and then are 100% into the effect. Uh, One thing I mentioned in the Greater Magic episode was that you have to be prepared for the extreme result, uh, meaning death, obsession, um, or, or uh, even resentment for help. That's something you're going to find in life that I think is one of those funny, absurd things, is that you know sometimes people ask for help and then resent you for helping them. And it's almost because they weren't capable of doing it themselves, so they get pissed that you were capable of doing it for them. So you always got to be careful and pick and choose. Uh, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, so you know we'll wrap it up there. But keep in mind that ritual is not—it's not—it shouldn't be the first stop. You should be trying to stand up and be a grown adult and resolve your issues in life yourself before relying on ritual. That's just how I see it, you know. Let's move on to the infernal informant. Listen up, listen up, the first article is The American Spectator, and this is by David Catron on uh, February 6th, 2012, who castrated Ann Coulter. She once had cast iron, well, courage. Now she's backing the safe GOP candidate. There's no conservative writer that I admire more than Ann Coulter. She's smart as hell, and more importantly, she's courageous. She's always been willing to write what other conservatives believe, but don't have the guts to say in print. She's never played it safe and has certainly never adjusted her opinions for the sake of conforming to the conventional wisdom of old guard Republicans. In 2008, for example, she declared that she would not merely vote for, but actively campaign for Hillary Clinton if the Republican Party were foolish enough to nominate John McCain for president. If you are looking at substance, rather than if there is an R or a D after his name, manifestly, if he's our candidate then Hillary is going to be our girl, because she's more conservative than he is. But something had happened to Coulter. I don't have first-hand knowledge that she was kidnapped 
by Rhino Team 6 and taken to an offshore medical facility where she was forced to undergo a gruesome surgical procedure. But many of her recent columns suggest that something of the sort must have occurred. What else could explain her endorsement of Mitt Romney? Once immutable with her core convictions were concerned, she has executed a vertigo-inducing volt-face in order to promote a brazen opportunist whose positions on the big issues were the opposite of hers before he began running for president. She relentlessly trashes Republican moderates like McCain, yet now supports a candidate who makes the Arizona senator look like Barry Goldwater by comparison. It first became apparent that something awful had happened to Coulter last November when she wrote a column asking, if not Romney, who? If not now, when? In this surreal effusion, she claimed that the media were pushing Newt Gingrich and other alternatives to Romney because they are terrified of running against him. This, as many pointed out at the time, was preposterous. The only thing that terrifies the media about Romney is that he might not get the GOP nomination. This is the man they want to run against. Unlike Coulter, the media and the Obama re-election team know that Romney can easily be portrayed as a Wall Street parasite whose only memorable accomplishment as the governor of Massachusetts was the enactment of a health reform law that renders him unable to credibly denounce Obamacare. What brings us to this latest evidence that Coulter has been somehow altered, her inexplicable support for Romney has led her, beyond being merely wrong about his chances in the general election, to writing things that are either deliberately disingenuous or genuinely ignorant. The latest example of this tragic development is a column titled Three Cheers for Romney Care. As its title suggests, this piece actually defends the Massachusetts universal health law. When I read it first, I could hardly believe such horse manure had emanated from Coulter's keyboard. The column opens with this howler. If only the Democrats had decided to socialize the food industry or housing, Romney Care would probably still be viewed as a massive triumph for conservative free market principles, as it was at the time. First, Coulter apparently didn't notice, but the Democrats did socialize housing and it triggered the most dangerous financial crisis since the Great Depression. More to the point, her suggestion that Romney Care was viewed by conservatives as a free market triumph is revisionist nonsense. Coulter attempts to support this claim by naming a couple of conservatives who initially supported the law. Somehow, though, she neglects to mention the large number who opposed it. As Merrill Matthews points out in Forbes, when Newt Gingrich claimed in a debate that most conservatives once supported the mandate as a way of countering Hillary care? That's wrong. There was, in fact, a heated battle among conservatives, with a handful pushing for the mandate and the large majority opposing it. Nor does Coulter mention that one of the two conservatives she cites as supporters of Romney care and its mandate has long since recanted. Robert Moffat of the Heritage Foundation whom Coulter tells us was so excited about Romney care that he flew to Boston for the bill signing, realized years ago that mandates were not an effective mechanism for eliminating the free rider problem. Since 2008, he's vigorously advocated far better alternatives to the individual mandate, and Moffat's buyer remorse is by no means an isolated case. As Matthews puts it, virtually all conservatives have come to realize that the mandate is the gateway drug to control the healthcare system.
Coulter, in a journalistic sin of omission worthy of the New York Times, fails to note any of this. She instead claims that conservatives dislike Romneycare because both Obamacare and Romneycare concern the same general topic area, healthcare, and can be nicknamed, politician's name, plus care. To this ridiculous charge, she adds the irrelevant point that mandates are constitutional when enacted by states rather than by the federal government. This is true enough, but it misses what should be an obvious point. Healthcare consumers are less concerned with constitutional nuances relating to federal versus state powers than with the reality that they will be forced to buy insurance whether they wish to or not. That the mandate was passed by a single legislature rather than Congress will not render voters less inclined to resent such government interference in their private transactions. Coulter then reminds us, Romney had pledged to repeal Obamacare, but that promise will ring hollow once Axelrod and company inform the voters that the law is virtually identical in its effect on their individual lives to a law her candidate signed in Massachusetts. The damage this will do to Romney's credibility will be exacerbated when Obama's many friends in the news media point out that his reversal of positions on health reform is a part of a larger pattern of opportunism. They will gleefully report, for example, that Romney is also guilty of shameless flip-flops on Second Amendment rights and abortion. On the latter issue, he has reversed himself no fewer than three times. When the voters see MSM reporters relentlessly pounding him for such evolution, they will realize that his campaign promises are meaningless. Yet Coulter, once the scourge of such malleable moderates, has gone through some sort of transformation that has rendered her blind to Romney's cheap opportunism. And if the primary voters are foolish enough to follow her advice, then they will rue the day they listen to her and the establishment Republicans with whom she has now made common cause. As Coulter herself pointed out last year when she spoke at CPAC, Barack Obama will be re-elected in 2012 if the Republican Party nominates Mitt Romney for president. That's the article, and this is uh, this is amazing. What we see in the Republican Party is nothing short of a mad dash to extremes. You have a party who has been defeated by a black man, something the Republicans can't swallow. Uh, and that's a simple and probably relatively offensive way of saying it, but that's the reality behind it. Now, I'm not saying every Republican's racist, because that's not true. What I'm saying is that Barack Obama represents everything, everything that the extreme Republicans are against. And I'm not talking about uh, moderate Republicans like Romney, because quite honestly, I think the current Obama that we know and the current Romney that we know are only separated by color of skin. <laughs> I really don't think there is that big of a difference between them. Uh, they are both very much conservative moderates who will react uh, to the best interest of business. Barack Obama has been doing it since he's been in office, even though he was elected on the premise of not doing it. And Romney, well, he's flipped to these current very conservative values so that he can get nominated and so that he can go back into uh politics proper and become the next president. The only reason why he's doing this at all is to kiss up to the voters. That's why you're going to see these things like these flip-flops like three times on abortion, for example. There's 
evolution view. Now, I, I made a declaration uh, back, I don't know, maybe six months ago when this hoopla started, saying there is no way we will have a Mormon president. I stand by that. Especially if that Mormon president is Romney. Now, we may eventually have a Mormon pres- president. Um, I would think it would be an unfortunate situation because of the absurdity that one has to be able to think and believe in order to be a Mormon. But that's not to say that someone can have enough money behind them to do it. Um, Romney has the money, for sure, but he certainly does not have the brain capacity. This guy is uh, focusing on business when that's what's wrong with our country. Uh, and uh, it's just that thing that we're, he's completely out of touch, and not just because he seems out of touch, but because he genuinely is out of touch. And the harder he tries to prove that he's not out of touch with the common middle-class individual, um, he just really shines the light that he is a, a real big elitist. Something, I might add, that the Republicans are fervently against in their current incarnation. Now remember, the Republicans have been split now. They're split between what is one, what is now being referred to as moderate, but what was once the common view of, of compromise as a politician, including Republicans. But because now that they're kowtowing to the Tea Party uh, religious right extremists, they can't compromise. And they have been the biggest block of any progress since this president has been office in office, since since Obama's been in office. Really absurd. And then the, the idea that Ann Coulter is somehow not going to take the extreme situation. Is it really irrational to think that she would back a moderate when she was saying that she was going to back Hillary Clinton, a Democrat, who most of the Republicans actually believes is, is like the devil incarnate? Like, they're so against her, they think she's like this conniving monster? I, I think it's a way to to shut down a successful woman, which is, for me, a little bit offensive. Um, but more, they just feared the, the, the potential that she has, genuinely, as a politician. Uh, the, the history, the, the legacy that she comes from. Because it's a legacy of success. You may not like it, but it is. And she's like one of the top recognized women in the world. So, you know, it, it's not surprising to me now that a woman who had once backed Hillary Clinton would now back a similar moderate like Romney, though she's trying to stay in the same party this time. You know, this, I don't even know if you can call her a woman, Ann Coulter. I mean, she's, and and that was doing the exact same thing that I was just bitching about people doing to Hillary Clinton. Uh, She is a woman, as far as I know, medically, as far as I know. (laughs) Uh, But she is a, uh, a true extremist woman, meaning she will take whatever controversial topic and use that to, uh, even if it means demonizing other people, um, for good or ill, uh, for her, to further her point. But she's always been known to do that, take that sort of extreme stance. So in any Republican who sees her and is like, oh, how could she be doing that, has really just been ignoring who and what Ann Coulter really is. And that's an actress on a large world stage that only responds to extremists. No surprise here. 
All right, and the next one here. This is from CBS News, uh, February 10th, 2012, by Lucy Madison. Santorum, concerns about emotions if women on front lines. You're going to love this. Santorum is one of those politicians that I genuinely would love to meet in a dark alley and beat his ass. Uh, He is a bigot. He is uh, short-sighted. He is a misogynist. Um, And he's really religious, which I think is a cancer. So... You know, if I was a doctor, I would like to exercise that cancer. After the Pentagon announced Thursday its decision to allow women in the military to serve in critical roles closer to the front lines of combat, Republican presidential candidate Rick Santorum expressed concerns about this prospect of women serving in combat roles due to the other types of emotions that are involved. I want to create every opportunity for women to be able to serve this country, Santorum said in an interview with CNN. But he said, I do have concerns about women in frontline combat. I think that could be a very compromising situation where, where people naturally, you know, may do things that they may not be in their interests of the mission because of the other types of emotions that are involved. Other types of emotions, really. I'm betting that this dude has never served in any training exercise in the military with a woman, there is no sexuality when you're in a combat exercise, and certainly when you're in a combat mission. You do not see the women as objects of your protection any more than you see the brother next to you as an individual to protect. That's what you're there to do, is... is to use that other emotion that I'm sure he's talking about, it can't be sex. It must be uh, brotherly compassion for uh, someone who's you know watches your back, right? I would like to think, probably not. There is no oh my gosh, I have to stop this mission. I, that's the whole point of military bearing. That's what we're trained to do from basic training and on is to maintain your military bearing in given hostile situations, so that if it comes down to life. Over mission, mission is first. Like, that's the bottom line. Okay, let's continue. Santorum went on to say that while probably, you know, it already happens, of course, due to the camaraderie of men in combat, but he said that if women were also serving on the front lines, it would be even more unique. And I think that's probably not the best interests of men, women, or the mission. In an interview with NBC's Today Show on Friday, Santorum clarified his remarks, noting that he's not concerned with women being emotional, but rather that their presence on the field could impact men's decision in battle. When you have men and women together in combat, I think there's... Men have emotions when you see a woman in harm's way. I think it's something that's natural, that's very much in our culture, to be protective, he said. How condescending. This is what drives me crazy. He is not only shortcutting a woman's capacity, but he's also shortcutting a man's here. And it's really that chauvinistic ownership of women that Judeo-Christian religions believe. And he's trying to ascribe that to the entire culture. I don't think he's ever met a real woman. Because a real women talk back. Real women strike back. Real women stand up to their men. And I gotta be honest, I'm kind of scared of some women I've met in my life. Uh, it's to respect. But just for the fact that there's no way that I would see 
two soldiers, a man and a woman, in a combat exercise or in a combat mission, and think, I need to focus on either one of them over what I'm supposed to do. You're trained to lay down your own life for the mission. The ultimate sacrifice. That's what you're there for. And to think that because a woman is next to you, that somehow you're going to lose your military bearing and not being able to do that is insulting. Just that notion that somehow we own women so we have to protect them is insulting. And the idea that women need protection is insulting. This guy is a jackass. Uh, What else he says? Okay, so that was my concern. I think that's a concern with all of the militaries. What an idiot. According to the new Pentagon guidelines, women can be permanently assigned to battalions in roles such as medics, radio operators, intelligence officers, or communications officers. In practice, women have already been serving in these roles in temporary positions, but the new rule formalizes this practice, effectively opening up about 14,000 jobs. Still, women may not yet serve in combat roles on the front lines. The new rules maintain a ban on women serving in infantry roles, as well as in combat tank units and in special operation commando units. I think this is absurd. I think if the, if the woman can go through the training... Oh, sorry, that, that was actually the article. If a woman can go through training and compete at the same level as her peers, the men in the training, then she should be given the opportunity to fight in the manner in which she is capable. Now, this is why we have different jobs in our militaries, as Santorin says, is that every individual in life has capacities, things that they're naturally better at or they just work better at. That Those are the different jobs. So if you are capable of being an amazing <clears throat> SWAT team member, a ranger, a Navy SEAL, whatever it is, Uh, Airborne infantry, let them serve. Let them do what they want to do. We are living in this backward society. And it's funny because we're looking across the pond and looking at these uh, ancient Arab cultures. (laughs) Yeah, I said Arab. And condemning them for literally convincing women to cover themselves up. And that it's convincing them that it's their choice, one, and that it is in their best interest too. <laughs> All the while doing it for the man's own sense of authority and power over them. You know, with religion backing the entire scheme. And we're looking at that and saying that's absurd. But how is that any different than us saying, well, you know, we're not telling her to cover herself up. No. We're just telling her, hey, you know, stay in the back with the bandages. Um, where it's safe and, where, you know, patting them on the head. You know, where, where you're going to be okay. We're going to go do the real work. Fuck that. That is ridiculous. <laughs> this is what drives me crazy, because I know a lot of men who are very much like the woman that Santorum is intimating all women are. And I've met many women who are tough as shit, that are much tougher than I am. Not every woman, just like not every man's like a woman. But it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has everything to do with individual capacity. And that is what's so absurd about this. Is that he's not recognizing people as individuals. Well, well, well. Santorum, you've had some luck because of lack of voter turnout in the three states that you have won these uh, ridiculous Republican, uh, let's say, dog and pony shows. Or horse and pony shows, actually. You can tell I don't watch fucking shows on animals. Um, but... There is no chance in hell that you, 
that Anal Juice Santorum has <laughs> look it up has an opportunity to become the president of the United States. Uh, you know, and for better or worse, Obama's going to be the next president. Uh, I mean, it, it's a rational reality that we all have to come to terms with because the people running against him are complete morons, the indefensible morons that the majority of Americans would never in good conscience vote for. Now, I understand, you know, I'm a realist here, so, you know, it's not all about individuals' understanding of, of these ridiculous presidential nominees. But, really, really, look at these people and look at what they're saying and read between the lines because it is laughably absurd. Just like Santorum's name. That's going to do it for Infernal Informant. Let's take a short break. On the other side, we're going to be talking with Royce Davis in Creature Feature. Venture down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram and Eagle, Hello. where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan. are different than cats and hey what if jack nicholson were hey what if we are the world was sung by the cast of friends i think it might go something like this hi everyone i'm jay leno anyone remember when i was funny eat doritos ladies and gentlemen dane cook are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief, carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Oh, God. No. Just me. Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome. To Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by artist Royce Davis. We're going to be talking a little bit about him and a little bit about his work, uh, the various avenues of art that he has uh, pleased uh, the rest of us in society with. <laughs> uh, Royce, thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's quite oh, an honor pleasure. to be on your show. I appreciate that. Uh, before we dive into... Uh, talking about uh, your talent let's talk a little bit about yourself uh, what can you tell me a little bit about yourself um well 
Obviously, my name is Royce Davis. I'm an artist. I've been working uh, as a professional artist for about 10 years now. Uh, traveled the greater Northwest, mostly. Seattle to Hollywood and everything in between. Nice. I'm currently residing in an incredibly small town called Clear Lake. It's the largest natural lake in California and the smallest town <sighs> Which has its advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, I would imagine if, uh, I mean, if if, if your primary focus of, of uh, income is, um, I don't know, a one-on-one artistry, it would be a little bit more challenging to live in a smaller town, I would think. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, your drawing pool of clients is potentially smaller compared to other places that I've lived. Um, so what is it that drew you there? Well, actually, uh, I was born and raised in San Francisco, and Clear Lake is just a few hours north of San Francisco. And at some point in my childhood, my mother ended up here, and I never wanted to have anything to do with it because of the small town and the different atmosphere between here and the city. Uh, but as I got older and things like property value came yeah. into a factor. The advantages of a small town versus a big city financially just became too great. I couldn't stay away. So uh, when did you first realize you were a Satanist? Um, officially, it was probably around 1996. I was around 16, and that was when I first read the Satanic Bible. Before that, I had searched for... A, a type of religion or philosophy that I could agree with a hundred percent and was very unsuccessful. I, I didn't know the, the Church of Satan officially existed. Even though I grew up in San Francisco and you would think I would know that type of stuff, just the uh, growing up in a Jewish home, it's not something you hear about. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Uh, you know, it was it was never talked about in any seriousness. So I had heard the term Satanic Bible and Church of Satan and always assumed it was some kind of joke. And visiting a local bookstore that I used to go to to get kind of metaphysical books, a subject I've always been interested in, I saw a copy one day and said, hey, that looks interesting. So I picked it up and read it. And as soon as I read it, I knew that was that was the thing I was going to agree with more than anything else. Right uh, I always love that. Whenever someone's like, oh, you're from San Francisco? Well, do you know Steve? Like, because you live in an area, you know everyone and everything about that area. Oh, exactly. It's <laughs> a sort of ridiculous idea. And I, I, always, I always run into this. Um, you never know how little you know about the world immediately around you until someone comes in from the outside and starts asking questions. You're like, well, how long has that building been there? Isn't that like the most amazing architecture? You're like, huh, never really, uh, really looked at that before. That's, <laughs> you're right, that is amazing. I have no idea, and it's like right next to you. So yeah, I, I, I always think that's really funny. Oh, do you know Susan? Yeah, she lives in San Francisco too. <laughs> Yeah, San Francisco is one of the worst places, too. Uh, and it's tourists that let you know how little you know by asking <laughs> yes. for directions. And they say, how do you get here? And you think about it, and you look around you, and you say, you know what? I do my laundry right there. I live up those stairs. I work right here. 
I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't get out as much as you think I do for living in the big city. Yeah. Yeah, like that's exactly what everyone does when they live in a big city is walk around every shop and like mentally catalog it on the off chance that someone is going to ask them a question. It's yeah. ridiculous. Um, so what about the Church of Satan? I always I, I love to ask this question because uh, identifying yourself as a Satanist is uh, is one thing, but actively aligning yourself with the organization, I would like to think, is an entirely different creature. Uh, so what was it that, that really pushed you to do that? Well, I, I contemplated joining for a number of years. Uh, it's one of those things that I... I didn't take as lightly as some people, I suppose, you know, joining an organization. I'm, I'm very reticent to join anything. I watch it for quite some time. And in watching The Church of Satan, I saw all of these books come out. In addition to the, you know, there was the original Anton LaVey books, which I agreed with 100%, and I love everything he ever wrote whether it was in a book or on a piece of printer paper. It's just amazing. Uh, but then Magister Gilmore came out with his book. You know, of course, took over as high priest eventually. Yeah. And then uh, the Rose book and the Sass book. And I just, I loved where they were taking Satanism. You know, it shifted focus from its inception where it was a, a blasphemous, self-serving thing and became so much more. It's still self-serving, and it's still definitely blasphemous, but now so many people have their own agendas that they're aligning together and creating a greater agenda, and I really loved where it was going, so I decided now's the time. I'm going to throw in my few dollars and get on board with that because the only reason you should ever follow someone is if they're going where you are and that's how I feel about the Church of Satan. It's going exactly where I'm on the same road to. Well, and I think that's interesting because I don't think anyone has ever really described it that way before, as as though as though there has been some form of um, uh, shift or, or maybe nudge in a, in course. And I always thought that um, the the theatrics that Levey was um, so known for was a way of, of breaking into sort of the, 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 the common consciousness of everyone and exposing Satanism to the masses. But I never really thought that, that uh, Magus Gilmore or, or anyone else that stood as a representative for the Church of Satan really ever took it in a different direction necessarily, just, just looked at it maybe from a different angle. Um, and I think even Anton LaVey, when he stopped the theatrics um, later in his life, uh, I think he saw that, that same angle that, that Megas Gilmore is taking it or, or seeing it and, and, and representing it in now. So I think that's interesting. I never really heard it that way before. Well, I definitely, I definitely agree that uh, the current administration is taking it where Anton LaVey wanted it to go. Yeah. Uh, most definitely. Uh, when, you know, if... And if they were still around, he probably would have taken it in the same place, and I think that would be equally as exciting. It is to not be the one taking it there. Uh, it's still exciting to me. Yeah. And so, I think uh, the the people who see the most that there was a shift are the people who get online and waste time bashing the Church of Satan. 
which actually influenced my decision to join quite a bit, believe it or not, is the people just flaming it really? all over the place. Yeah. I always look at the enemies as well as the friends of the organization to get the true picture. And uh, when your enemies are just making fools of themselves, <laughs> obviously you need to get on the other side because the enemy's side is just retarded, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> right on. Um, well, let's shift it a little bit here. Uh, you're involved in a lot of things that I would like to talk about. Um, let's talk about tattoos first, being a, a fan of them myself. When did you first start tattooing? I first started tattooing uh, the day I turned 18, pretty much. I had an apprenticeship lined up nice. before, far before I was 18. But laws in California state that you can't actually legally tattoo as a business uh, until you're 18. So the day I turned 18, I had my first apprenticeship day, and not long after that, I started tattooing professionally. It was probably a little longer after that that I started getting good at it. (laughs) Uh, But technically, it was about 1999 when I started tattooing uh, professionally. So let me ask you something, because it seems like... And this, I'm coming from a position of ignorance here. I don't know. It seems like it would be difficult um, to find uh, an apprenticeship with someone that you admire as an artist. Was that something that you had been working on for a while? Or, or do you think that you were just sort of right, right guy at the right time? I think it was a combination of uh, luck, my clever ability to talk people into things, and <laughs> dedication. Uh, like I said, I had an apprenticeship lined up years before I was old enough to actually take it. Uh, I was out there really milking people and convincing people that I was the right one. The right people, you know, the people I yeah. wanted to actually teach me. And so, I worked on them for a long time. Is that a tradition that you're going to consider carrying on with an apprentice of your own? If, if I find the right person, I would take on an apprentice. I've had a few semi-quasi-apprentices over the years. Uh, the first one was when I was tattooing in Portland. There was a girl, she had been tattooing for a couple of years, but she had no idea what she was doing. Yeah. But she was a great artist, and I saw potential, so I helped her out quite a bit. She's actually doing amazing in the tattoo world. Uh, and I'm just looking for the next one right now, waiting for someone who's a good artist with a good set of work ethics. Yeah, I think nowadays that's probably one of the most challenging parts of it is <laughs> the work ethic part. For sure. Right on. Um, so why tattoos? Why? I mean, really, you know, artistry goes in so many different directions. What was it about the tattoo industry that really drew you? Well, when I first started looking in tattoos, the tattoo world was a little different than it was today. We obviously yeah. didn't have the we didn't have the TV shows. We barely had any type of artistic concepts in it. Um, art, art in tattoos in America especially is kind of a relatively new concept. And I, I wanted to bring that. I ended up being a little late to be the, uh, on the forefront of that wave of tattooing styles. But uh, especially in San Francisco, it was all these shirtless guys smoking cigarettes, putting eagles on sailors. And <laughs> none of it looked really good. It didn't look good, and I thought, I bet I can make this look good. I know I can. I can do better than what I'm seeing right here. 
So I wanted to do it because not only is it, not only did I think I could do it better, but out of all the art forms, tattooing is one that really directly affects people. You can go buy a painting and you can hang it in your house and you can love it and look at it and cherish it, but a tattoo you carry with you, everyone sees it. Not everyone knows you own a Picasso, but everyone knows you have a tattoo, for better or worse. And I just thought that was that was really cool. I don't for I don't know how better to put it. I just thought, how cool. These people walk around with this and people go, Hey, who did that? Oh, this guy named Royce. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted everyone to walk around and say my name and show off what I did. And that was the fastest way to get to it. So have you ever had, um, have you ever tattooed someone that you would consider, well, this is my best. This is, I've never done anything this good before uh, a piece. I, there's one in every genre. Definitely. Yeah. There's, you know, my best black and gray piece, which right now is unfinished. Uh, it will be awesome though. When it finally is finished, it's a full back piece. It's a lot of detail. Uh, and then I have my best color portrait and my best traditional, uh, because tattooing has so many different artistic styles, it's hard to come up with one piece that's the best, because each genre has its own technical aspects of it. Especially when a lot of these, I mean, just the different genres of tattooing, I mean, I, what is that like? Like 60 years old, if that? I mean, before that, it was just sort of just this old school style, like you were saying, like, you know, the eagle on the sailor or the, the anchor or something. And you'd have some, you know traditional script um i mean it hasn't been that long that as you said artistic expression has come into play with tattoos but more so a technique of that uh so i don't know it's always fascinating when you you run into someone who is one uh appreciative of the different artistic styles through tattooing but also that that is capable of of performing the different takes on it you know what I mean I mean I tend to see people who who like to either align themselves with one style or not you know rather than just the form of tattooing yeah that's it's pretty common uh, especially if you follow the tattoo world the tattoo world itself is a whole different uh, scene than the regular world tattooers band together and come up with their own everything yeah uh, and they're responsible for that type of speciality. Uh, right now in the tattoo world, neo-traditional is all the rage. If you tattoo any other style, you're pretty much crap in their minds. Uh, neo-traditional is kind of like the old Sailor Jerry stuff, but with more vibrant colors, and it makes less sense. It doesn't have any meaning. Uh, it's a joke in the tattoo world. You want to make a neo-traditional tattoo, you pull five objects out of a hat and combine them. <laughs> But you do it simply. It's a hard, bold line with simple shading. Uh, you only use five colors. And that's, pick up a tattoo magazine and you'll see most of it's neo-traditional now. That's what they're doing. Wow. Uh, and it almost impedes progress because everyone's too busy doing neo-traditional, thinking that's a tattoo to do anything else. But people that want tattoos, they don't see it that way. They just want what they want. Completely random. It's not based on the popular style at the moment. So, do you think do you think tattooists influence 
the popular styles, or do you think that it's the demand for styles, uh, new styles, that maybe informs the artists in having to create them? I definitely think uh, the tattooers influence quite extensively, more so than you think. Uh, when I was working in Portland, tribal was really popular. Yeah. And I spent a lot of days doing tribal, and it, it started to bum me out because I was doing the same thing every day. So I took all the flashbooks that we had, and I filled them with drawings that I was making of pinup girls. While I was bored with tribal, I would go home and draw pinup girls. I filled all the books with pinup girls, and that's all I put out in the studio. And it, after a few days, everyone wanted a pinup girl. Nice. Because they, they come into the studio, and they look at what they look at your books, and they see what you have. And what they see influences what they want. What you see in life influences what you want, more so than you might realize. So tattooers are manipulating you into getting certain things in certain ways. Of course, it doesn't work on everybody, but especially with TV, and there's more tattoo magazines now than there ever were. And those editors are putting in a specific style of things, and people in general do want what they see more than anything else. Very cool. What are some of your uh, personal influences um, artistically for tattooing? Uh, the art styles that I pull from are a lot of the newer guys, actually, like uh, Tyson Mikadu, uh who draws exaggerated women, pinup style, you know, with the huge hips and the small waist and the, the huge rack and the long legs. I just, I love that style. I always have just the whole pinup style in general, but he kind of has a new take on it. Uh, and then for, for the more realistic side of things, there are so many painters out right now doing photorealistic stuff with oil. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen any of that, but... I've gone to art galleries and looked at a, this huge thing and thought, that's a pretty lame photo. Why would this guy put it in the gallery? Look a little closer and go, oh, man, that's oil. That's oil on canvas. That's incredible. Wow. Uh, so I've been looking at those techniques a lot. They're layering. You know, they're totally new techniques, but they create a sharp, photorealistic look with oil paint. So do you, Super do you amazing. Do you think some of the, the 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 methods that painters use can help inform tattooing? A hundred percent. I I know from personal experience that although it's a different medium and the machine reacts way different than the brush, uh, the techniques of blending colors are still there. The artistic eye to notice shadow and depth and texture, those still apply too. You can still create those same effects in tattooing. But knowing how to create them is a necessity before you can. So, actually a tattooer named Guy Atchison was one of the first tattooers to bring that idea into tattooing. Uh, he was a little bit before I started tattooing so he, you know, he invented the concept stole my idea but 
but he was a he was a classically trained painter, and he worked in a street shop for about twenty years, tattooing flash. You know, just pick this off the wall and put it on someone. Yeah. And it, it took him about twenty years of doing that before he realized, why don't I take these oil painting techniques and apply it to tattooing and change the industry? That's cool. That's what it went almost overnight from eagles and crappy little faces to textured vibrant color crazy tattoos that like what you're seeing now yeah uh so any art in general has like a symbiotic relationship with itself if you draw every day and then start painting you're going to be better at painting and if you paint every day and then you draw something, you get better at drawing. It, it all feeds itself. Uh, there's always at least one technique that translates into another medium. Very cool. What um, what are some of the challenges that you find in the industry right now? Uh, the main challenge is just the amount of people tattooing. Uh, just especially out of their house. Uh, people who tattooed once in prison and think they're tattooers and come out and start tattooing people. There's so many people like that or people buying tattoo machines off the internet. So trying to compete with someone who charged $5 for a tattoo, it, it can get very frustrating because fixing a tattoo is much more labor-intensive than making one. Yeah. And it's also less gratifying when you're when you're covering up something or when you're redoing something. It will never be as good as it could have been if you did it right from the beginning. So lately, I find myself doing far more fixes and cover-ups than fresh tattoos, and it's it's frustrating in the sense, from an artistic sense, that it's not. You know, we're all our own worst critics. Yeah. So when you when you do the best you can at fixing something, it's still not the best you can do in general, and that's slightly disappointing. And it's hard to be disappointed with your work. You know, it's it's kind of frustrating. Uh, so you're working out of your own studio, right? Yeah. I am when now. when did you uh, set that thing up? I finally opened the doors in August of last year. Exciting. Uh, I was working on it for a little longer than that, trying to get everything ready and make the building habitable for uh, my purposes. Yeah. Um, it's something I've thought about off and on for years and years and years, but I, I never really wanted the responsibility of being the only guy owning it. Mm-hmm. But I finally caved. <laughs> finally what, had to do it. What was it that, that really inspired you to, to do what you didn't want to do? Um, mainly working for other people and carrying them. Yeah. It got to a point where I knew all these tattooers in all these different locations, and they would call me and say, Royce, I can't make rent. I'm not doing really well. Come save my shop. And so I would move. That's how I ended up in Portland. It's how I ended up in San Luis Obispo. It's how I ended up in a lot of these different locations. And I would go there, and I would work. And it's a combination of my work ethic I work a lot, you know. Uh, There have been months where I didn't take a day off and I spent 12 hours at the studio. I, when you love what you do, you don't want to stop sometimes. 
So a combination of my work ethic and the reputation that I had built through tattoo conventions, I just had an ability to come in and make a bunch of money for whoever owns the place. And I did that, and I just got tired of making money for other people. <laughs> that's, uh, that's as good a reason as any, I would think. Um wanting to just, just feature yourself. So do you ever, I mean, do you ever showcase other artists at your uh, studio? Yes, definitely. I have an entire room purely dedicated to local artists especially. And then I have uh, two other gallery rooms that showcase sometimes my things, sometimes other people's things, sometimes a combination of the both, uh, depending on how many artists want to or have awesome stuff to showcase at the point. Um, so we're talking traditional art, not just tattoos, right? Yeah, yeah. My my current studio's incarnation has uh, three art galleries. They're dedicated art galleries. Uh, and then it has your foyer entryway into the tattooing space. And then, of course, there's a photo studio attached to it. And that's where we're at right now. That's fantastic. I think... Some of the best shops I've ever seen are ones that do marry those concepts of, of art gallery and um, tattoos. I, I, I think, one, it inspires the artists, but it also inspires the clientele to want something more than just flash. Uh, Definitely. That's, that's awesome. Do you want to toss out the, the address for, for those listening who, who might be in the area or might be stopping through the area to see if they can maybe uh, check it out? Sure. It's 14260 Lakeshore Drive, and that's in Clear Lake, California. Phone number is 707-995-0141. You can also find more information at RollsRoyceTattoos.com. Very cool. Now, I did notice that you've been posting pho- photography on SatanNet. Um, when did you first, and I, actually also on Facebook and stuff, social networking sites in general, when did you start uh, diving into uh, photography? Um I have, I've, for a long time, I've been selling uh, photos to different tattoo magazines of conventions. That's, uh, you know, freelance photography is just the way of the world right now. And when you, I was working convention, I would just run around and take photos of different things. And then you sell those to uh, publications that promote those conventions. And I did that for a long time, and that was pretty much where I took photography. But I've always had an interest in it. So at some point, I started, it was actually my fiancé who spurred me into getting into people photography, because one of her dreams was to be in magazines. She wanted to be like a Playboy pinup style uh, model, and she said, well, you know, you take really good pictures, why don't you take some pictures of me and we'll see where it goes, and it kind of evolved into this big deal. I took some pictures of her and everybody said, oh man, those are really cool. Take some pictures of me like that. And before I knew it, I was knee deep in people wanting photos. So I I did what anybody would do and I got in contact with a bunch of photographers that I thought were really great and I picked their brains for secrets and tips and technical things and a couple years later, I was knee deep in family photos Wow. Who are some of the photographers that, that you sort of look up to in, in, in that world? Right now, a man named Carl Zeiser is probably the top-notch photographer in the people 
photographing world, especially weddings. He, you know, weddings are a specialty, but he just creates amazing, amazing images. He's definitely one to check out, and he does a lot in the photography world, too. He doesn't just take pictures. He has a, a photography blog, and he hosts a convention, and it's he just is out there doing things with photography in addition to creating beautiful images that you would never think of getting. The way that he uses light, and his viewpoint, you know, he just does some really cool things. He is definitely one of my current influences at the moment. Nice. Um, now, also, I've seen some of the photos that you were uh, talking about of pinup style. What are some of the locations you would like your, your photography to be featured? I mean, as a photographer, obviously you're taking these photos, you're, you're putting them up in your gallery, you're putting them out online, um, not only as artistic expression, but also to sort of draw them up business. Um, and, and just sort of uh, expose yourself to other people. Uh, where would you like to see your your photography featured uh, in the world? Oh, that's that's a tough question because there's so many different uh, places. Yeah. I I mean I do have some stuff in different galleries, uh, especially local galleries. Um, in the in the world of magazines, I've also had stuff in tattoo. Tattoo Flash, Pain. On the world of Satanism, I will very, at the next issue of Old Nick magazine, will actually feature quite a few of my photos, and that is a huge honor. That's very cool. So, with with Old Nick specifically, I mean, how does that work? Do they reach out to you? Um, you reach no, out to I them? actually, I uh, just fell into being the photographer for a specific model for them. Nice. Uh, which was fine with me because I do read the magazine. So let me ask you about that because if, I mean, if you read a publication that you're you're comfortable with, and this could actually apply to any uh, magazine, you know, Tattoo Flash or uh, Tattoo, where you're familiar with the content that exists uh, in those magazines already, do you feel any pressure trying to trying to live up to a, a specific? look that that magazine might be known for or do you prefer to sort of just take your own style and, and apply it to it? it? It would depend on the magazine. Uh, for instance, I mean because I, I know how some magazines work over others. Tattoo magazines is it's never stylistically. When I want to get something in a magazine, I just send them 200 photos of mine and they're bound to pick something that goes with whatever the next issue is. When they're doing the layout, uh, if I just send one of every category, they're bound to pick something as long as it's, you know, if you send them enough. Yeah. Uh, but then something like Old Nick, it's very specific, and they their look is very specific, too. I wouldn't think of just sending them 2,000 photos of different girls and hope they pick one. Yeah. I would probably come up with an artistic vision or some type of idea that I think would catch their eye before I would even try to present anything to them. Just because it's they're more, uh, they have higher standards, I guess. They're not just trying to compile a, a bunch of, they're not making a collage. They're making yeah. a magazine. Uh, you know, and tattoo magazines tend to sometimes be just a collage. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, that's that's very cool. That's exciting. So, um, 
which is it the next issue of Old Nick that you're you're going to be in, or is it one that's already been put out? Uh, no, it's the the they're working on it right now. It's going to be the winter issue. I believe it's technically number five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not out yet. It will be. Look for right. that. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly be pimping out that magazine when it comes out. I've always been a fan of of, of Old Nick. Um, okay, so where can people go to learn more about you, about your projects, or to contact you about work um, in any of the, the, the areas that you do work in? Uh, the easiest places to find me are on my websites. Uh, RollsRoyceTattoos.com is pretty much my mainstay. It's been my personal website for a little over 10 years. It has links to everything else. It has a link to my photography page, which currently is Royce Davis Imaging. Dot .weebly.com uh, domain name coming soon cool. uh, and as well as my other all the social networking Facebook, Twitter, uh, Model Mayhem DeviantArt, uh, Satanet you know everything can be found basically from RollsRoyceTattoos.com yeah. well Royce thank you so much for coming on the show I, I really appreciate it I know you're busy so I, I, I appreciate the time that you're able to spend um, and I, I've been looking at your tattoos I've been looking at your artwork uh, and now your photos and I think you're just a talented guy and I'm, I wish you the best of luck well thank you very much it was a great honor I really enjoyed coming on the show cool well, we're going to have to do this again sometime in the future uh, until then hail Satan hail Satan the bizarre. It's the bizarre of the bizarre. <laughs> that creeps the shit out of me. Yeah, no, they did it. What the hell? Oh, that is so weird and short, and it's sort of abrasive. Just jumping right into it too. All right. Well, welcome, to bizarre, the bizarre. I actually have another one. This is a bonus segment that I don't always do. And when I do, I like to think that it's a little obscure, a little out there, a little weird. Uh, before I jump into it, um, in the interview with Royce Davis, we had talked about his photography being featured in the uh, up-and-coming edition of Old Nick Magazine. Well, guess what? Old Nick Magazine is out with that exact edition we were talking about. It's kismet coincidence, whatever you want to say, it's out right now. And I'll tell you what, if, if you are not a fan of Old Nick, uh, well, I mean, I, I think there's probably something wrong with you. Uh, if you cannot appreciate uh, quality editorial, if you cannot appreciate uh, the majesty of the female form, then Old Nick isn't for you. It, it, it's a tease. It's a sensation. Uh, it's a smorgasbord. <laughs> Is that not the worst descriptive term ever used in, in the history of ever? <laughs> smorgasbord is a smorgasbord of the senses. A smorgasbord for your eyes. It's all. I feel like the like the Muppets cook. Uh, okay, a little, little weirder. Okay, so <laughs> go out, uh, check out oldnickmagazine.com. I think that's the URL. Uh, if not, just go to Facebook. Everyone's on Facebook anyway, and, and search for Old Nick. It'll pop up. 
uh, get the magazine. It is it is awesome, and it's not just awesome because of what it normally features. It's not just awesome because of the photography of Royce Davis <clears throat> being featured in it this month or this quarter. It's not just awesome because I have an ad in it. Oh yeah, that's right. I'll tell you what. Tell you what. Not what. What. W-H. What. If you give me a picture of you holding the magazine to my ad, digital or not, physical or digital, whatever you want to do, you send me a picture, I'm going to send you something. I don't know what yet. It could be a picture of uh, me holding the same magazine. It could be a special song from Black House Blues. It could be a, I don't know, it could be anything. It could be someone else's project that just wants to chime in. Hey, you know another project that I haven't really uh, pimped out much, though I did have them on the show, was Scapegoat. Check them out on Facebook. Maybe something to do with them. I don't know. You don't know. It's like fucking crazy up in here. You just don't even know. You send me a picture, and uh, you're going to get something for it. So go to Old Nick Magazine, pick up that magazine, support uh, a gentleman's magazine for our particular demographic. Uh, It's quality stuff. Pick up all of them that have been out so far since the 6606 premiere issue. Yeah. You need to be a part of history. Pick it up. Alright, so let's talk about uh, Bizarre the Bizarre before I fucking lose my shit here. Approved Toilet Activities uh, ATA as an acronym. Makes no sense. Okay, and, and this really just sort of started because I would go uh, use the restroom and I would hear someone talking and in my mind I'm thinking, okay, what are there, two people in this stall? And then I quickly realized that no, they're just chatting on their phone while they're dropping a deuce. And call me old-fashioned. Um... Call me a prude. I don't think you should be talking on the phone while you're pooping. <laughs> I just don't think that's approved toilet activity. And that's not it. Like, people will sit there dropping a deuce and, like, checking their email. And I guess that's not a big deal. Is it? I don't know. Like, I, I went to a friend's house once and he walked out of the bathroom with a skillet of spaghetti. Yeah. A skillet of spaghetti. How weird is that? A skillet of spaghetti. I, I It blew my mind, and I freaked out about it, and I went off on a rant uh, live in person when it happened because I could not understand why someone would, A, have a skillet of spaghetti in the bathroom with them, and B, having just admitted to using said bathroom. I just, you know what, I, you cannot in, okay, if we are living in a in a civilized society, there is no eating out of, while you're using the facilities. You cannot eat food while you're dropping a deuce. You can't. You cannot poop and eat. Okay, that's, that, that I'm, I'm making a rule. More to the point, it was a skillet of spaghetti. Who the fuck eats this? I don't know if I would have felt better about it if it was a plate of spaghetti, a bowl of spaghetti, a cup with spaghetti stuffed inside of it. But for some reason, a skillet made it seem that much more absurd and offensive. 
I don't know. Like, like it, you're so lazy that you don't even bother with the plate. Like, presentation of said food is no importance to you. All right, you're such a barbarian that the creation of a meal is so unimportant as to not even present it in, a, in an appealing way that you leave it in the skillet. Ugh, I shudder. But okay, that's fine. Whatever. You know, not everyone appreciates the look of a finely prepared meal. Not a big deal. But then you would take that into the shitter. <laughs> right? And, like, you're okay. And you're, you're fucking doing your thing. You're sitting down. You're just chowing away. And it's... I mean, it's not like you can eat and have it pass through you in that same moment and be done with it. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't happen that way. And so you're literally eating while fecal matter is spreading around the entire area, landing in your food, landing on your fingers, landing on your fork, in your skillet of spaghetti. <laughs> so weird. Uh, okay, and that, I, I don't even know why I freaking brought that up, because that wasn't even on my notes at all. Okay, so don't eat spaghetti in a skillet. And more to the point, in the bathroom. Uh, don't talk on your cell phone while you're peeing or shitting. There's no reason for that. Wait the time it takes you to finish. Because the person on the other side of the line doesn't want to hear that shit. Have a little respect for who you're talking to. Don't play games in the bathroom. Here's what I understand. I understand because mobile games are so prevalent in our society nowadays that it's sort of just common. If you're going to be spending some time, you might as well be entertained, right? Whatever. Whatever happened to just uh, enjoying the moment and using it to reflect. Not being plugged in at every second of every day. Just take a step back. Or, in this case, scoop back an inch on the toilet seat. Lean back. I don't. I mean, don't touch the back of the. Have you ever like touched your back to like the cold porcelain back of a toilet? It's like the most obscure thing. And not to say that your shirt is off, so you'd feel the coldness of it. But just the fact that you're like leaning back, like I, I feel like that's that's not a very conducive angle for projectile anything. <laughs> like. I feel like it'd be like almost a fire hose if you're peeing, if you're leaned back while you're doing it. And like if you're if, if you're pooping, maybe leaning back would like, I don't know, give you like a weird splash angle so you'd have like that much more toilet water on your balls than you normally get from any particular backsplash. Am I the only one that gets that occasionally? I don't get it either then. <coughs> um, <laughs> anyway... So, okay, so no games, no no nothing. I understand, like, people have, like, a, a, a magazine or a book on the back of that. That's fine, um, I guess. I Just don't lend that particular volume out to other people if that's what you're going to do. That's cool. But don't ever eat. Don't ever, ever, ever eat while you're in the toilet. Disgusting! Don't do it! And if you're doing it now and you're okay with it, I am not, and that fucking fact alone should be enough to let you know that I'm probably not the only one, and that your behavior in the bathroom is probably not okay. Anyway, that was my rant on approved toilet activities. Uh, so, you know, so what is approved in the toilet? Using it. That's what's approved. I, I, it, it bothers me, this idea that you're using the, 
the time that you're evacuating waste from your body as some form of, uh, I don't know, meditative moment. Like, the point is to evacuate the waste and then move on with your life. If that is the only moment that you are able to concentrate or to think openly or to communicate or to eat spaghetti out of a skillet, ah, then maybe there are some other problems that you have in your life that you need to address. Like, use that as a litmus test. If you are eating in the toilet, if you are using that as an excuse to, to I don't know, uh, commune with your mind, you're a fucked up person and you need help and you need to reevaluate freedom in your life. Like, that's all I'm saying, alright? That's all I'm saying. Uh, that, and go pick up the new issue of Old Nick Magazine. Yeah. Send me a picture of uh, you and uh, my uh, uh, ad. It's a pretty good ad. Pretty happy with it. Yeah. Alright, so, you can send that picture to info at 9centspodcast.com and guess what? Oh yeah, yet again. That's it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website. Nine. This is funny because I'm sure everyone out there listening to this knows that I have this sort of script that, <laughs> like, for the for the like two line intro and like the four line outro of my show that I read every <laughs> every single week. But it's like this formal thing that you can tell just by the way that I'm saying it that that's what I'm reading. So if you didn't understand me at all. If you don't understand English at all, you would still know that this is the end of the show just because of the way that I'm reading the end of the show. And that's sort of just one of those things that, I don't know, maybe I've been doing it that way for too long. Maybe I've got to switch it up. Man, how about I switch it up right now? Okay, here we go. That's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com. <laughs> okay, that didn't, that didn't work very well. Um, however, send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. <laughs> so quirky today. Uh, let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching for 9 cents and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. Even though I know you're not going to. That's like this is like the line of the entire outro that I, I I've been debating like deleting because I know no one leaves a rating or comment. And it's okay. It just means other people aren't going to find me. It, it's like every I swear every other week I get an email or a message or a commentary from someone saying, I never knew you existed if it wasn't for my friend who listens who told me about it. Well, first of all, let me thank you guys, every single one of you and gals, um, for spreading the word about Night Sins. I am amazed that you listen and that you appreciate what I do, and I am humbled, and I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you for telling your friends about it. Um, but, you know, how about the people that you don't know? The way you can reach them is by giving me a rating and leaving a comment. Shit like that does matter. Uh, so, you know, if you have the two minutes, I really do appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for your support up until now. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, musical personalities, visit RadioFreeSatan.com and online streaming radio station. And once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, 
I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, wait for it, Hail Satan!